You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you have your Bible, maybe you turn back to Jonah chapter 1. I'm sure you know this chapter very well by now. So far in our study of Jonah, we have seen the clear call of Jonah to go to Nineveh because their wickedness has risen up against them. And uh, it was a clear uh, call. There was no ambiguity about it. Jonah knew exactly where he was to go. He knew exactly what he was to do. And yet we discover that Jonah rejects that call and engages in his flight towards Tarshish. We've learned how God always gets his man, how he sent a storm after Jonah. And last time we noticed in our study of verse 7, first of all, Jonah's silence. Remember how he was asked how he could sleep and how he could be prayerless uh, in the midst of such chaos. Uh, We looked at the whole idea of casting lots and the sailor's question, who is responsible for this? And we come this morning then to consider verses 8 to 10. And uh, we begin at verse 8 where the sailors put a string of questions to Jonah. I I think sometimes whenever we read this, and and that's the first thing we're going to look at, are uh, are these urgent questions. I think sometimes the urgency of this is missed on us because you can just read the print. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Remember the background here. The ship is breaking up. The storm is horrendous. These men are terrified. And and the picture I get here when I read this is they have burst in upon Jonah. Jonah has been disturbed from his sleep. They can't believe that he's sleeping. They've They've discovered that he's responsible for this. And then these questions come like a machine gun to him, one after the other. And it strikes me that they're maybe asking these questions all at once. And and the urgency of this comes through by the, the fact that the questions are so many and they come so quickly. But, but let's just first apply these questions to Jonah. Now, these questions must have, have really got home to Jonah's conscience. Like, for instance, what do you do? That's one of the questions. What do you do? Or what's your business? Well, well of course, his business was that of a prophet. He was a prophet of God. What's a prophet? A prophet is a foreteller. Not just a foreteller, but a foreteller, one who tells forth the, the good news that God has given him to announce that that was his business. He's God's messenger, which, which he had deserted. So you, you can imagine that this would have pricked his conscience. It would have maybe more than pricked his conscience. Where do you come from? Well, He comes from standing before God's presence as a servant. Part of his business was standing before God. He got this message from God. He spent time with God. And whatever way God communicated that message to him, the message was clear to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And this is where he was coming from, the very presence of God. And what is your country, Jonah? 
from what people are you? Well, he belongs to the people of God, whom he had left for the heathen, not to win them as God commanded, but to get away from them, to get away from God's people and to get away from God. So that was the, the questions as applied to Jonah. But I wonder, could we apply those questions to ourselves? Just stop and think for a minute or two in the midst of our busy lives and ask yourself this question, what is our present business? What is our present business? What are we about on this earth? Is it the work of God or is it the service of Satan? What are we here for? Or to put it in the terms of the catechism, what is man's chief end? What's our chief purpose in this world? Well, the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Is that the business that you're about today? What is our country? Is it the world or is it the kingdom of God? Are we content with earth or do we seek a better country? Of what people are we? Of the people of God or those who are living without God and without hope? Some live in holiness, others in sin. Some by faith, others by sense. To whom do you belong? Or let me put it another way. Whose side are you on? Because either you're for Christ or you're against him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral territory. Either you're for him or you're against him. And where do you come from? Do you trace your origin from God? That is, are you born of God, a child of God, or a child of the devil? But let me ask you a further question, one that Jonah wasn't asked here. Where are you going? Where are you going? Now, it's an, over, it's an overworked expression at the present time. We're all on a journey. But the reality is we are. We're all heading towards a terminus. We're all going somewhere. And the Bible is very, very clear about the destination. There's only two destinations. There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun. There's no neutral territory either. There's nothing in between that. There's either the road that leads to heaven or the road that leads to hell. So just pause in the midst of your busy life and ask yourself this question. Where am I going? What is your aim? What will be the end of your life? Yes, these are urgent questions. They're urgent. All the while these questions are going on, the storm is raging around the sailors and Jonah. And, and while I put these questions to you and I put them to myself, 
There's storms raging around us too. This this storm of chaos, from our perspective of the world, is raging around us. And time is going on. And time is running out because the Bible tells us clearly that there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And it tells us that there'll be a, a time come when time will be no more. There's an urgency about this. There was the urgent questions. But the second thing I see from this little passage is the confessions of faith and guilt. Look at them there in verses 9 and 10. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. First of all, Jonah confesses his faith. He confesses, his confession is unreserved. He says, first of all, that he is a Hebrew. And and that designates him as one of Abraham's descendants and indicates great privileges and advantages. As one of Abraham's descendants, then what he is privileged with, he has been given the law of God. God has revealed himself to Israel, to Abraham's descendants, and Jonah's one of those. So he's in a very, very privileged position. And he, he makes no bones about it. He's one, he's a Hebrew. He's one of the peculiar people of God, if you like. And, and he makes no bones about it. And if you're a Christian here this afternoon, then you have been adopted into the new Israel, if you like. To us belongs the Word of God and all the benefits, the covenants and blessings that God has given us. Indeed, we're far more privileged than Jonah was in his day because we have the whole canon of Scripture. We're privileged beyond measure. I've said this from numerous pulpits. There's not a more favored part of the world than where we live, really, if you think about it. We've been blessed with generations of the truth of the gospel. God has left us without excuse. Brought up in homes maybe where we were taught the word of God, Sunday school, churches where we were taught faithfully the truth. What a privileged position. And our sins, the sins of Christians, are more dishonoring to God than those of pagans. Because to whom much has been given, much shall be required. So he says, first of all, that he's a Hebrew. Secondly, he says that he's a servant of God. He says, I worship the Lord. And, and he uses the capital letters there, or in the translation, it, it, it indicates Yahweh. And, and though his conduct belied his profession, yet he reverently feared and worshipped the Lord. And and he he says that his God is the creator of heaven and earth. And and Jonah exalts him above all the local deities of heaven, sea, and land and directs the sailors' thoughts from their own fables to the true and living God. Now, I don't believe what we have here in verse 9 is all that Jonah said. When he said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land, 
you know, I, I believe that, that Jonah said a lot more than that about his God. He told them who his God was and what his God is like. His God was also the Lord, the great and significant name by which God revealed himself as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of a chosen people. So Jonah confesses his faith. He says he's a Hebrew and he's a servant of the living God. But secondly, Jonah confesses his guilt. And what a change in the prophet. He makes a bold confession. You see it there in the parenthesis of verse 10, the bit in the brackets. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. He told them so. He admitted his guilt that he was running away from this God who made the heavens and the earth, this God who made the sea, this God who was coming after them. He was running away from them. He makes a full confession. He had neglected his duty. He had hid his faith. He had refused to help the crew and told them that he was in conflict with the Lord and that his conduct was wicked, not against some local deity, but against his maker and their maker. And this was hard for Jonah, but he did it. He confessed his guilt. You know, the bitterest dregs are reserved for the traitor. Whether it's an unrepentant Judas or a repentant Jonah or a repentant Apostle Peter. For Judas, it meant a lost eternity. For Jonah and Peter, it meant renewal and reaffirmation of their faith. So there was the urgent questions. There was the confessions of faith and guilt. And then there's the results of Jonah's confession. You see it there at the beginning of verse 10. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? Now, what terrified them? I was thinking about this. You know, whenever you see all that Jonah said, he didn't say very much. Sorry, there's not very much recorded of what he said. That's why I say he must have told them more. He must have told them that this God was perfect and holy and can't bear to look upon sin. He must have told them the truth about God. And he must have told them the truth about man, that man's a fallen creature, that man is, in, is living in rebellion to this God. And it's this God that's coming after them. And so this terrified them. And they asked him, what have you done? So the prophet's confession here only intensifies the sailor's fears. Why? Because it's dawned on them that it is Jonah's God, the living God, who rules the winds and the waves and is offended by sin. Jonah's testimony brought them to see the truth about God's claims on their own lives, the lives of the sailors. And so... You know, whenever the lot fell on Jonah, they didn't sigh with relief. You know, they didn't think, you know, that's great. 
it's, it's not me. Whenever they discovered that it was Jonah to blame, there was no sigh of relief. They were led to think more deeply about what Jonah had said about his God. They were led to think more deeply about what Jonah had said about his own sin and their sin. And you see, when they realized that if Jonah, if God was angry with a backslidden believer like Jonah, how much more was he angry with polytheistic pagans like them who had been crying to their impotent gods only moments before? And so, as it records there in verse 10, yes, truly, they were terrified. They were terrified. And you see, they had been evangelized by Jonah's confession. Because in it, the truth about God and the truth about man became clear to them that the Lord was pursuing them as well as Jonah. They weren't innocent bystanders caught up in someone else's problem. No, they were not the innocent victims of Jonah's transgressions. Not at all that they might at first have thought themselves to be. They realized that this holy God had his own controversy with them and that they must answer to him for their own spiritual condition. And so, can I apply this question to believer and non-believer alike? First of all, to those of you who know the Lord. Let me bring this question to you. What have you done? What have you done? In view of all that you know of God, Jonah was a prophet. Jonah knew God intimately. And in spite of that, what has he done? He's been living in disobedience. Maybe I'm speaking to a believer here today. And you've drifted from God. The world has got into your way of thinking and you've forsaken your first love. What have you done? What have you done? Or what about any unbeliever in our midst this afternoon? What have you done? Here's someone you've known about perhaps your whole life. You've known about him. You, don't, you haven't known him personally, but you've known about him. You've known the truth of the gospel all your life. You've been privileged beyond measure, as I've said earlier. Far more privileged than, than millions of people all over the world who've never heard. What have you done by ignoring God, the God who made you, the God who could end your life like that? What have you done? One other fact I want you to notice this morning, and it's this. The storm raged on. The storm raged on. In spite of Jonah's confession, the storm raged on. They were still in as much danger as before. The popular notion today is that admitting an error should be followed by instant forgiveness and the remission of any penalty. Jailed criminals 
uh, will, who become Christians have been known to express that expectation that they might now be released since they have so decisively mended their ways. Children caught telling lies expect to avoid punishment by simply owning up. The continuing storm teaches us that saying sorry is only a beginning. God's mercy is never given at the expense of his justice. He pursues his controversy with Jonah in order to exact an appropriate penalty. Confession's not enough. The sinner must turn to the Lord, and he must accept the consequences of his sin. Then, if he really is trusting the Lord, what he'll do is he'll throw himself on the mercy of the Lord. And it's in the context of a readiness to face the appropriate penalty of that law that, that the Lord is placed to give remission. Because true repentance accepts the justice of a righteous God. The storm does not abate. The Lord continues to pursue Jonah and the sailors to the end that they may know into whose hands they have fallen. He is chasing them in order to win them. Jonah was found out, but he was found out by a redeemer who would save him in spite of himself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't it, doesn't it put a new seriousness on sin for us? How can we lightly sin and fall into the hands of a just and righteous God? No, we must flee from every appearance of sin. There's one last thing I want to say here before, before tonight we go to look at Jonah being thrown into the sea. I hope you'll come back tonight that we would think about that. I want to finish just by talking to you about collateral evangelism. What on earth is collateral evangelism? Well, you know, in a time of war, like for instance, in the, in the Ukraine war at the moment, the, you know, the Russians have been putting these missiles over and they've hit hospitals and all sorts of things. And what they claim is, oh, they were aiming for an ammunition dump or they were aiming for... Uh, a piece of artillery, and this was collateral damage. Just happened to be there. Well, there is such a thing as collateral evangelism. And that's what happened here. God is pursuing Jonah, but in the pursuit of Jonah, the sailors are collateral evangelism. Let me give you an example of this, uh, an up-to-date example. Many of you, I hope, will be familiar with Billy Patterson that worked in the Irish Mission for years down in Kilkenny. Did a wonderful job with, the, with John Woodside. God really blessed their ministry there. Saw a, a tremendous work done. But <clears throat> Billy was approached by a lady at one time uh, whose son was in Port Leash Prison. She prevailed upon him to go and visit her son. And Billy went, got it arranged, came into this room. There was the prison officer, and then there was the man that Billy came to see on the opposite side of the table. Billy spent about an hour with him, and uh, to the best of his ability, sought to explain the way of salvation to him, sought to 
point out to him the error of his ways, that he was a sinner under the just condemnation of God, that he deserved only the wrath of God. That's what he deserved. But God is a God of grace, and God has provided a remedy for sin in the person of the Lord Jesus. He explained how Jesus came, died on the cross, and as he died on the cross, God poured out his wrath on him so that he could forgive guilty sinners. The price was paid. And he explained it to the best of his ability. But he came away desperately disappointed because he said, he told me, he says, I might as well have been talking to the wall for all the response I got. All I got was just hardness. And he couldn't understand. He, he believed God wanted him there. He couldn't understand it. And he went back and explained to the man's mother, you know, this, and she was terribly disappointed. She says, Billy, look, would you go back again? Please, I would really love you to go back again. So Billy organized to get a visit. The man came in, same room, same prison officer. Man across the table went through it all again. And he said, he got no indication from the man this time that it was any different. He was as hard as nails. But there was a difference. It was the same prison officer. And the prison officer began to ask questions of Billy. And Billy was able to evangelize the prison officer. Collateral evangelism. Do you see what I'm saying? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you today as you seek to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus. And sometimes you'll think, oh, that was a disaster. I tried to share my faith there and I made a complete horlicks of it. But you don't know. You don't know who else was listening. You don't know what's going on in the background. There's no way you will know. Our responsibility as Christians is to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity. Results are nothing to do with us. Our responsibility is to tell forth, proclaim the good news. Look, you don't have to be a theologian to do that. We're called to be witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness tells what they've seen and heard and experienced. That's what you're called to do. You know, one of the most effective ways of witnessing is to share your testimony with someone. Tell someone what God has done for you. You can do that, can't you? And again, you may be faced with a blank expression, but you don't know you might be sharing your faith with someone who's surrounded by his wife and family. Someone else is listening. You don't know. Look, I'm going to leave it there because our time is gone. But tonight... We're going to look at Jonah being turfed over the side. So please come back this evening. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.